0: This was one of the things that we we saw the opportunity to sort of put in what do we know about the evidence-based practices in school? What do we know works? What do we know doesn't have any evidence? And then how do we just foster common sense? This isn't hard, you know, if we're fighting a pandemic and we can't figure out how to send all our kids to school together, then we're totally lost.
1: Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt. The podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried-and-proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hello and welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alice Hoyt, and before we dive in to this interview with Dr. Matt Greenhot, um, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Greenhot. He is the director of Food Challenge and Research Unit at Children's Hospital Colorado. And if you listen to my podcast uh, from over the summer of 2020, I did a special episode, a few special episodes one where I actually used a discussion I had with school nurses as my podcast episode. I wanted to give you guys sort of that behind the scenes of what allergists talk about when we're talking with other medical professionals, especially our super important superhero school nurses. So He is the first author of this paper, and the paper, I have a link to it on foodallergyanyourkiddo.com. The paper is entitled Managing Food Allergy in Schools During the COVID-19 Pandemic, and that's back episode 12. Definitely check out that episode. The amazing thing about Dr. Greenhot is his way of just being no-nonsense, stating his interpretation of the data, and that is what you're going to hear in this episode. So you might hear some things that are not necessarily what you would expect to hear from a food allergist. You're going to hear interpretations of the data regarding school policies. You're going to hear things that are not necessarily popular in some circles regarding food allergy. And why I'm prefacing you with the or prefacing this episode with this is because I want you to know just how important it is to me that I am delivering to you a very well-rounded picture of food allergy. A picture of food allergy that is driven by evidence that is supported by some of the best minds in food allergy and that is really what this Episode demonstrates. So I look forward to receiving your comments on this episode. Please go to foodallergyandrykiddo.com, sign up for my newsletter, email me, let me know what questions you have about this information that we're presenting about our discussion, and let me know what else you want to hear on the podcast. If you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know that too. But without further ado, here is my first part of this what will be a two-part podcast um, Two part podcast episode, so I guess two episodes of the podcast, um, with Dr. Matthew Greenhot. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Hoyt, and I have with us a very special guest today, Dr. Matthew Greenhot from Children's Hospital of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: I like the y'all. I'm sort of, I I would say, I'm I'm a Floridian, which most Southerners don't consider South, although we are further geographically South. We probably have more roots in New York and other things, but I like the y'all. So, um. Well,
1: good, good. Yeah, Louisiana is kind of a different kind of South like Florida, I would say. So we're going to talk about Food allergy and kiddos today. Shocking, right? But um before we kind of get into that, I wanted to ask you, you know, what really led you into focusing your career on allergy and specifically with so much on food allergy?
0: Yeah, that was you, think you should probably ask my wife this question. Um, she could she could show you I wanted to be everything but an allergist. Like at first I wanted to be a surgeon, and then I wanted to be um, I knew I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I wanted to be a cardiologist. Then I wanted to be maybe an intensivist, neonatologist, pulmonary. I kind of stumbled on allergy late in my second year of residency, um, where I, I was uh, I was able to do a rotation. And um, having grown up with asthma and allergies, it just sort of it spoke to me because I could relate to what was going on, especially at the time I was training at children's hospital in New York in, in, um, in, in Manhattan with a massive pollen season and just like miserable. And, you know, actually the, the, the the attending who I was working with treated me. So, um, and just exposed me to just some very cool things about food allergy and and drug allergy and other, um, uh, other types of allergy. And I, I was sort of hooked. And then um, knowing that I was going to apply. Um, I just started reading. And one of the first articles that I read was Scott Sichler's, um 1999 study on in-flight allergy. Um, and I thought this is fascinating because I remember having taken a flight like the week before and um, I knew they didn't serve peanuts, but I saw some idiot with a jar of planters sitting behind me and I'm like, well, how's this going to work? If you can just bring this on. So that sort of started my um, my journey into food allergy, um, although I took a detour into immune deficiency for a couple of years, actually. Um, back then, there wasn't a match, so you'd have to apply 18 to 24 months ahead of time. So I needed a job after I had secured my fellowship, and I worked um, in bone marrow transplant as a hospitalist, so um, a very aggressive service doing some very high-risk transplants, including, including primary immune deficiencies. So um, that was sort of where I cut my teeth in, in hardcore immunology, and it was fascinating. And then I ran to this office, side in food allergy um i joke that my only skill right now is sort of just the um, intestinal fortitude to sit there with the syringe full of epinephrine while i give your child x y and z waiting to see if they will react or not and other than that i'm pretty useless so um
1: well on this show we are very proactive about confirming it's a food allergy diagnosis doing ingestion challenges really making sure before we commit a kiddo um We as allergists commit a kiddo to a life of avoidance, carrying an auto injector that we're for certain that they have an allergy. Also, especially now with so many treatments um, available, coming available, all of those things. Um, And so I also earlier uh, on the podcast a few months ago, actually, I guess it was around the back to school time. um, I talked about on the show, your paper in Jackie in practice about back to school with COVID regarding food allergy. And yeah. we talked a little bit about this offline, but I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, what prompt, you're the first author on the paper. There are a lot of great folks on the paper. What prompted you to write the paper? And um, what, what were some of the things that, that you found to be just real highlights and, and gems in there, real clinical pearls?
0: Yeah, I, so that came about in May, and it came about or May 2020, and it, it, it came about pretty quickly. After some discussion, um, I, I consulted for some advocacy groups, and there was a lot of push to get the CDC to clarify sort of, well, what are we going to do about, um, you know, uh kids going back to school, the social distancing, the spacing. And basically the CDC had said, we're we're discouraging people from eating lunch in the cafeteria and we want them in the classroom. And that's when sort of at least in certain segments, some concern went in about, oh my gosh, my child could be exposed and whatnot. And it was it was clear that the CDC wasn't going to clarify this. And the advocacy group sort of had a disjointed um approach to it there they were they were different approaches based on which advocacy group you were talking to and i felt that you know this this is a medical policy this is something that the the physicians should be writing um, as opposed to the, 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 lay organization. So that, that was really what prompted, um, that paper to get launched. Um, and I work with a great team. And while I was the first author, that just meant that I was the one that I, I, I sort of said, Hey, let's, I put the team together, but the team really wrote that and, and no one member should take more credit for it than anybody else. Um, I mean, I was the one stuck, you know, with the endnote stuff, you
1: know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's talking about mean. references. y'all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and putting everybody's name into the editorial manager. So I, I got the grunt work on that. So maybe that earned me the first author by just sort of more, more legwork on it. But um, no, I mean, we wanted some common sense things. And actually, if you look in the literature, there aren't a lot of school policies that are written by physicians. It goes back. The last one is really 2009. It was, it was Todd Marr and Scott Sissure's paper in pediatrics talking, and Michael Young talking about these, you know, what to do then. So, you know, that, that was 11 years ago, you know, it was sort of before zoom or social media or any of this stuff. Um, you know, um, it it was, it it was very sort of odd that nothing had evolved since then when, you know, there there's now new policies and things like that. So, um, Mm -hmm. part of it was a chance to sort of take a second swing at that. And, and just from a a physician standpoint, looking at the evidence and, and some of the the vetting of the policy that we have now um, to put that, you know, into perspective, especially in the setting of a pandemic. And um, this one was a little weird because, you know, what, what, what do you want for your child going to school now? Well, I don't want them to get COVID that that's my first and foremost thing. And, and, you know, think, you know, 10 months ago, we were thinking about things a little bit differently than we are Mm -hmm. now. Um, But it was was unclear if kids were really affected to the same rate. I will go out and say that while I'm seeing these data, I'm not sure that I'm convinced or believe it. I know what the data say, and I know what the the party line is, that that kids are protected. But I think that was the most um, crucial thing at that point in time, you know child to child and child to teacher and teacher to child transmission. So the distancing was a big thing. And I could understand why they didn't want kids in a cafeteria because there isn't enough physical space and not all schools have cafeterias. So that meant that the food had to come into the classroom. So now what do you do? Well, you can't, right. yeah, you can't. And a little, band... a little
1: background on this for the listeners, yeah. because some folks are new to the food allergy world is that our food advocacy advocacy organizations have worked for over a decade, in some cases, a few decades now to really um, bring to the forefront the concern of food in the classroom and um, my organization Code Anna, which I've mentioned on the show before. We always encourage schools to make policies not just based on kiddos with food allergy, but really holistically Is it ideal to have multiple treats, multiple days of the week in the classroom, um, especially given some of the obesity challenges we have? More kiddos are having high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, all of these things. So is it really all that healthy to have so much food in the classroom all the time? On top of that, when you do make a policy and everybody, everybody knows that it's based on a kiddo or a few kiddos with food allergy that puts targets on those children's backs. And that's not how we need to approach this. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, please. Oh, no, no, no. I think those are good
0: points. I mean, I, I think back to, um, I think back to my childhood where I, I was one of those kids. I was a very picky eater and skinny and um, you know, I, I probably subsided more days on peanut butter and jelly than not. But back then in the eighties, you know, I'm sure there were kids with, Analogy, but i didn't know or wasn't it wasn't like it is today and different times and you know everybody loved the cupcakes coming into the classroom and stuff like that it's but this my children are being raised in a completely different environment and i think the evolution is good because it, it is more inclusive and it does cater more towards the needs and like you know I think everybody should share a goal that preventing a food allergy reaction at school is, is is a very easy target to meet. I mean that 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 is not a heavy lift for most, most most classrooms and whatnot. So common sense policies, you know, on consolidating treats, making, you know, de-emphasizing things, you know. Um, we also, I guess we had obesity and high blood pressure in kids when we were in grade school too. But again, it what maybe you're not as aware of it as a child looking at um, you know, kids are different sizes and, and, and whatnot, but you don't know what their blood pressure is or anything like that. So yeah, I, I think, you know, deemphasizing sugary snacks is not a bad thing. You know, um, getting McDonald's and stuff out of um, hospitals is not a bad thing either or something like that. I hope you're not sponsored by McDonald's. I am um, but, not you know, sponsored. Yeah. So that, that's good. But I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's simple things. You know, we have other problems and food allergy is one of them and obesity is another one. So yeah, mm-hmm. you know, non-food treats are probably the way to go consolidating that stuff. But what we looked at was, okay, we now have a chance to, we can adapt this to what do you need to really worry about for the next year or whatever with the pandemic? And can we consolidate things back to what we know works? So um, we know that hand-washing and surface-washing works. So if you do have food in the classroom, no matter what the allergen is, including things like peanut or whatnot – that wipes off. Like this is, it works in your house. It works in your restaurants. Why wouldn't it work in school? And um, so, you know, and that's where the evidence is. There there are a number of of different studies now, about four studies that have showed that you can wipe this off quite effectively. And even as the probes to detect the allergen get a lot more sensitive, meaning that they can detect even the smallest, tiny, probably insignificant bit there you know, you're just not able to find it. So hand washing and surface washing are still, you know, sort of our best friends in school. Um right. Things that don't work, banning allergens. There has never been proof. I get the concept behind banning allergens or whatnot. And this is where there was some chatter that, well, if the kids are going to have to eat in the classroom, then really we should ban all common allergens. And I'm thinking, do you understand this cannot, this is not compatible with eating at school. There's an equity issue. You know, some kids at school, um, you know, they come from low income situations. They are dependent on three meals being served from the school, things like milk from the USDA or whatnot. And actually, um, you know, uh, you know, you, you, can't take that away from that. There, there becomes a very, very big equity and disparity, um, there. So, you know, the, the whole concept, I get it. You know, people are more comfortable with the allergen. If the allergen isn't in school, then their child who's allergic to that can't react. Right. Well, yes, if you can enforce that, and the enforcement is hard. And, and actually, there's never been a study that has shown that banning foods really actually produces the outcome that we want. Um, there's, there's data that suggests actually possibly the opposite, that people will subvert the policies and sneak mm-hmm. it or whatnot. Um, but it, it's just not medically necessary because you can hand wash, you cannot share and you can wipe surfaces surfaces down. So right. one of the big things was that we wanted to de-emphasize that as a recommendation. And and I want to I, interrupt you yeah, again for a second yeah, go, because I want to clarify. i just keep talking. If you don't, I want so. to
1: clarify for folks why it would be um, unrealistic to remove or ban all allergens or top allergens, common allergens, whatever we want to call it. Peanut, tree nut, egg, milk, wheat, soy, thin fish, shellfish, sesame is moving up. And Dang. also, uh, my husband and I were discussing last night, well, what if you take into account people who have alpha-gal allergy, which is the mammalian yeah. meat allergy? So yep. then you're not going to be serving any sort of mammalian meat. Ultimately, it's not realistic to ban all of the allergens. Now, yeah. I do get in certain age groups... Um, preschools trying not to have sticky butters, right? Peanut butter, tree nut butters, because yes. the children are going to get it on them. And they uh, might very quickly, just very innocently try to feed it to their friend who um, has a peanut or a tree nut allergy. Like that totally makes sense. But Matt, you're hitting on the absolute common sense things here that we have to that we have to address and what I liked so much about y'all's paper was that it really did come out with the evidence that exists and it yeah. came out with you guys taking a stand and that really helps schools when they're able to go back to the literature and that's what I helped facilitate for schools as I help provide them the literature so that they can make the best policies with ideally with a physician in their area, an allergist in their area, but make the best policies for their particular culture, for their particular school. But you're exactly, you're absolutely yeah. right that you can't remove all of those allergens. Hi there! This is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right! We are now offering food allergy office hours for parents. These one-on-one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt.
0: Right. And, and it's very difficult to enforce. And this year, that's not what you want the school doing. You want to make sure that the kids aren't spreading COVID to one another. And as I sit, I'm recording this in the parking lot where I just dropped my child off this morning. He's back in school, um, after they tried and, and, you know, now it's, it's, it's late March and they finally are getting back, um, But everybody's walking in with masks and whatnot. I mean, you're worried about infection control this year, and that is the biggest priority and the spacing and whatnot. And actually, there are models in Europe that have suggested that the spacing and, you know, putting up plexiglass or some of the other solutions, that was going to work in the favor of of food allergy anyways. All these anti-infectious measures, hand washing, Mm -hmm. things like that all of that, you know, is great. You know, like kids are full of germs walking around school and, and, you know, we've joked, it's not a joke. It's actually great. Who would have thought that wearing a mask and keeping kids apart would like plummet rates of childhood wheezing or whatnot. It's been fantastic. Maybe this is not the way you wanted to do it, but the end result, I will take that's a, you know, a cohort of kids. who won't get asthma potentially. Um, But all of, all of that helps sort of spread of, 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 you know, possible cross contact or whatnot. So that can those I are stop good you measures. right there? Because yeah, you said please. something
1: cool. Talk a little bit about why the wheezing and the asthma, because I think some of our listeners are probably like, wait, what did he say? What's that oh, yeah. connection?
0: Yeah. So um, the hypothesis is that um, early childhood viral illness can polarize development of asthma and allergies, um, things like rhinovirus, RSV or whatnot. Um, and, and you see it in these kids that enter preschool and, and and very young elementary school that they get these recurrent viral illnesses. their wheezing is triggered only in the setting of viruses or whatnot and you know maybe soccer practice or something like that. but it starts with the virus so, less kids getting virus means less kids progressing to asthma. And I, I'm part of a large preventative study for asthma right now. We can't enroll anybody because nobody's wheezed in the past year. Oh, mm-hmm. well, boo-hoo. Like, that's a good thing. Um, well, it's I mean, interesting, no, Matt. Study, how much
1: How much is it chicken and the egg? Like, how much it, of it is yeah. kiddos who have that, some sort of epigenetic predisposition um, to going atopic, um, as opposed to tolerating the environment and then they're exposed to rhinovirus. At University of Virginia where I trained, Dr. Peter Heyman did yep. so like we were the rhinovirus group, right? Um, and then there's RSV groups and it was fun to go to meetings. Those people um, in
0: Madison may argue which one of you reigns supreme on the rhinovirus, but that's, that's fine. You settle that.
1: Wahoo wah, wahoo But, but it's so interesting the way that the immune system, and I don't want to dive too deep into immunology here, but it's very interesting the way our immune systems interact with Viruses with bacteria also interact with things that really shouldn't be bad, like peanuts, yeah. and um, or ragweed, a- yeah. and and the clinical manifestations of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. You get you get this infection in your lungs, and then all of a sudden you start, you know, with the I guess in certain people who are maybe prone to this you can start the development of developing, you know, antibodies, the IgE against, you know, certain pollens or whatnot. And really it's that, that, that viral infection is like a big developmental thing. So I think we've done a good inadvertent job this year. If there's any silver lining from our kids, not necessarily being in school, it might be this, uh, it might be outweighed by other things that we learn about in the next five to 10 years, but you know, um, we'll we'll take small victories where we can, but anyways, back to what it was. So these policies that are keeping kids apart with the masks and whatnot, um, a lot of that was already working in the favor of protecting the food allergic kids, anyways. So, um, but you know, it it was implausible to ban allergens in the classroom and to really sort of separate the kids even more than they already are. I mean, I think a lot of this was working in their favor. The, the next piece that we really hit on was that if you don't have stock epinephrine at your school, what better moment of time are you waiting for now when everybody's going to be eating in the classroom where you can see it it's a lot more easy to 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 at least you know spot a reaction happening and we we, we not only recommended that these schools sort of get on board and and opt in if they're in a state that that can opt in um, but also to move the action plans and possibly the centralized storing of the units of epinephrine to the classroom where they're eating or the reaction you know, why have it all the way down the hall in the principal's office or the nurse's office or wherever when, you know, put it at the source of where the issue is going to happen and cut down even on those critical, you know, two, three, five minutes. So, I'm
1: going to interrupt you here again, because I want to specify for our listeners what stock epinephrine is compared to what other forms of epinephrine yes. um, are. So stock epinephrine is epinephrine, it should be prescribed in the form of an auto injector though some legislation does not specify that should be for- prescribed in the form of an auto injector and the physician actually writes the prescription to the school like epiPen junior to little oak elementary school and the school is then able to obtain the devices they can either in some states go to their local pharmacy in that case, they typically have to pay for it, depending on how much it costs. There are programs, I was just looking into how much OBQ costs, and there are <laughs> programs where uh, school and non-school entities that qualify, depending on the state law, can obtain a two-pack of auto-injectors for $246.99. Oh, that's yeah. cheap. Uh, that's, that, I know, that's right? I'm stylish. like, for real? Yeah. Um, And, but that stock is a stock that the school has in case anybody, or it should be in case. Anybody has an allergic reaction. This can be somebody who has a known allergy, an unknown allergy, student, adult. It doesn't matter. But so it's not is, written that way. <laughs> it, so this is where the heterogeneity of it all comes in, and I talked about that on the podcast a few weeks ago because I let my listeners know uh, one of the posters we were presenting at the academy meeting. Um, but typically, stock epinephrine is should be available at a school in case anybody has an allergy, emergency anaphylaxis. That is different from a prescription of epinephrine that's specifically to little Jimmy or specifically to little Lakeisha. Those are prescribed to the child. And depending on how old the child is, depending on what the parents and the allergist, ideally, and the kiddo have discussed, that that auto-injector, typically a two-pack. Schools typically always want the two-pack because we do recommend that, epinephrine be be carried in in its two packs in case god forbid you need the device and the device fails so then you have to use the second device or you're having a severe reaction you use the first device 5 minutes goes by and and you're still having progression or not not any sign of resolution of symptoms you use the second device of course always calling 911 and not because the medication is dangerous but because the reaction that's occurring is dangerous So that epinephrine is, it's the the same. It's an EpiPen. It's an AviQ. It's whatever it is. It's just like a stock device would be, but it's all a matter of to whom it's prescribed. And if it's an older kiddo, they really should be self-caring. And that's what I was getting at with having a conversation with the allergist, the parent and the kiddo. And that way their device is on them so that In the event they have a reaction, they can have prompt administration of the medication, and we know prompt administration of epinephrine is what results in the best possible outcomes. So that is the difference between stock epinephrine and epinephrine that is an individual prescription. And getting back to the paper, you guys were arguing that, or strongly recommending, that schools, if they don't have stock epinephrine, that they get it.
0: Yep. Yep. And- to take this moment to make sure that that teachers specifically in the classroom have training on how to recognize it. Um, we had talked about maybe putting a generic, you know, every kid now basically that's allergic, you're prescribing an epinephrine device and giving them an individualized action plan for school. So the school has like a hundred of these things, each of them sitting there. But in effect, somebody's peanut allergy is not treated any differently than their milk allergy. You look, you see certain symptoms. It doesn't matter how they got there, you treat with this. And if other symptoms are there, you treat with why. So, you know, making a universal centralized plan is probably in the best interest. That's a whole other topic. And I've written some stuff on that, but we wanted teachers in the classroom to have an action plan there. So they didn't have to run down the hall and to potentially keep, you know, the source of epinephrine in the classroom, because that's where all this is saving time going back and forth or whatnot. Um, but also training them to use it. And, and again, these are things that you can nest in now. These are perfect opportunities to enhance care. If, if, if the school had been a little bit lackadaisical on that, and, um, you know, that was, that was a plus, you know, other things that we talked about in that paper, um, zero tolerance for bullying. If you're going to have food and, and everybody's going to have to eat in the classroom, uh, there was already going to be probably zero tolerance for like, Oh, I have COVID and I just sneezed on you or something like that. Like all the state kids are kids, you know, bullying is, is, is part of childhood for better or for worse. It changes forms and it changes topics and hopefully you know that that will lessen as as we get more awareness of bullying and whatnot but um there has to be a zero tolerance for food allergy related bullying if there's food in the classroom and kids are near each other and and that was one thing um the other things that we talked about was communication between the parents between parents of kids with food allergic kids parents of kids without food allergic kids and the school so that everybody's on the same page you understand sort of what the we want to send the kids to school. They actually want to go to school. Oddly enough, you've never seen more kids clamoring to go back in the classroom, you know? Um, so how do we send them back? Everybody has to get along. Everybody has to live in peace and harmony. Um, like that 1970s Coke commercial with everybody on the hillside there, you know, this has to, you know, the ideal school setting has to exist for this to work from an allergy standpoint, from an infection standpoint. And, um, you know, sometimes there are black swan events that sort of set this up where you can take advantage of this. And and I think this was one of the things that we, we saw the opportunity to sort of put in, what do we know about the evidence-based practices in school? What do we know works? What do we know doesn't have any evidence? And then how do we just foster common sense? This isn't hard. You know, if we're fighting a pandemic and we can't figure out how to send all our kids to school together and we're totally lost, you know, um, this shouldn't be that hard, mm-hmm. but, um, Communication, you know, knowing where to adapt certain practices, there may be circumstances where you need to contextualize things. So very, very young, or if it's a special needs school or something like that, maybe, you know, selective things like bans or restrictions in certain areas of the school may make more sense there. But as a blanket policy, no. I mean, there's not a lot of evidence for that. And there are other papers that are coming out sort of talking about that. Now I know it's popular. It's probably controversial for me to come out here and say like bans don't work. I'm sure that people are going to say, yes, it does. It worked for my kid. And you know, yes, in, in certain circumstances, it, it may be a, a decent idea, but across the board for everybody as one universal policy. No, it, there's no evidence supporting it. And um, you know, I think that the kids are less vulnerable than we realize that they can wash their hands. They can advocate for themselves. They can wipe their tables. You know, as long as you don't share, you know, there, there is, there are arguments. They're not popular in the food allergy community, but you know, once you put a ban in, right, that reduces equity for other kids too, depending on what the food is, you know, that, that might be, and I know it's not outweighing the consequence of an act of a reaction for that kid, but you need to also think that nothing is in isolation, you know, wherever you, if you pull in one direction, there's a push in another direction. Again, everything has a balance. And um, that's where communication has to get um, really to, to the meat of the matter. Parents have to sit down before the school year starts and talk about, okay, what can we, what do we need? What are the needs? What are your needs? What are my needs? How do we sort of put these together and come to a common thing? You know, maybe in some classrooms that, that, that other parents are not as, you um, you know, against the bands, or it's not as significant for them, or at least that one parent who's like, no, "No, I can't do this because of X, Y, and Z." At least everybody can get their their sort of needs out, and then it can be sort of mediated in a different way. But when the school puts these bands in, it's usually they don't want to deal with anything, and that's their way of doing it. It's it's not as protective of the student as I think. It's more protective of them and their liability, which is a little bit disingenuous of the approach. But um, and I'm sure that that's a controversial one. But you know show me, show me evidence that, you know, I, I, deal with this in my own state, you know, with things, Oh, we just want this. They, they were, I were dealing with this, our action plan last week. Oh, we just want every kid who gets, you know, um, who has a reaction to get epinephrine and go to the emergency room i'm like well you know maybe that's not the best thing for the child maybe it can be treated a different way maybe that child will be actually stable and they can go back to class in an hour you know like can we do our jobs here instead of just doing what's easiest and we think is going to release us from liability like there's no substitute for like getting it right you know i'm not allowed to take shortcuts in my job why should you you know, I, that's how I look at it. Anyways. But again, well, I
1: will tell you that you are in a safe space here because I know that the listeners of this show, they want the honest opinions. And even if it's not necessarily their stance, I know a lot of them, they want to hear they want to hear the truth. Um, so thank yeah. you for coming on here and yeah, sure. sharing what the evidence is and, and yes. your interpretation of what exactly works and what you've seen that doesn't work. I hope you've enjoyed this first part of my interview with Dr. Matt Greenhot. He really does speak his mind, right? And it's so refreshing to me when I'm able to have these discussions, open discussions. This is a safe space for us to all come and share our interpretation of the data, but really allowing best practices these days to be guided by evidence. So even though a belief may not be popular, or might not be the trending thing, y'all know that when you come and listen to this podcast, you're going to get presentation of the evidence and you're gonna hear experts discussing their interpretation of that evidence. So I hope you've been enjoying this episode. Of course, y'all, I'm an allergist, but I'm not your allergist. So talk with your allergist about what you're hearing on this episode, what you're reading in articles on foodallergyandyourkiddo.com and and visit foodallergyandyourkiddo.com where you can sign up for my newsletter where you'll never miss an episode of this podcast and also get other great information all about food allergy and you guessed it, your kiddo. Okay, I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week, especially going into this blessed weekend of Easter. So God bless you and God bless your family.